Pros Are the Days. Thank you for joining me for the second installment of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. If you're reading along, today's episode will encompass chapters 4 through 9. Do you have your tea? Today I have Jasmine. Great, let's jump back in. 4. It would have been a difficult matter for Mr. Pontellier to define his own satisfaction or anyone else's wherein his wife failed in her duty toward their children. It was something which he felt rather than perceived, and he never voiced the feeling without subsequent regret and ample atonement. If one of the little Pontellier boys took a tumble whilst at play, he was not apt to rush crying to his mother's arms for comfort. He would more likely pick himself up, wipe the water out of his eyes and the sand out of his mouth, and go on playing. Tots as they were, they pulled together and stood their ground in childish battles with doubled fists and uplifted voices, which usually prevailed against the other mother tots. The quadroon nurse was looked upon as a huge encumbrance, only good to button up waists and panties and to brush and part hair, since it seemed to be a law of society that hair must be parted and brushed. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was not a mother woman. The mother women seemed to prevail that summer at Grand Isle. It was easy to know them, fluttering about with extended, protecting wings when any harm, real or imaginary, threatened their precious brood. They were women who idolized their children, worshipped their husbands, and esteemed it a holy privilege to efface themselves as individuals and grow wings as ministering angels. Many of them were delicious in the role. One of them was the embodiment of every womanly grace and charm. If her husband did not adore her, he was a brute, deserving of death by slow torture. Her name was Adele Radignol. There are no words to describe her, save the old ones that have served so often to picture the bygone heroine of romance and the fair lady of our dreams. There was nothing subtle or hidden about her charms. Her beauty was all there, flaming and apparent. The spun gold hair that comb nor confining pin could restrain. The blue eyes that were like nothing but sapphires. Two lips that pouted, that were so red one could only think of cherries or some other delicious crimson fruit in looking at them. She was growing a little stout, but it did not seem to detract an iota from the grace of every step posed gesture. One would not have wanted her white neck a mite less full or her beautiful arms more slender. Never were hands more exquisite than hers, and it was a joy to look at them when she threaded her needle or adjusted her gold thimble to her taper middle finger as she sewed away on the little night drawers or fashioned a bodice or a bib. Madame Radignol was very fond of Mrs. Pontellier, and often she took her sewing and went over to sit with her in the afternoons. She was sitting there the afternoon of the day the box arrived from New Orleans. She had possession of a rocker, and she was busily engaged in sewing upon a diminutive pair of night drawers. She had brought the pattern of the drawers for Mrs. Pontellier to cut out, a marvel of construction, fashioned to enclose a baby's body so effectually that only two small eyes might look out from the garment, like an Eskimo's. They were designed for winter wear, when treacherous drafts came down chimneys and insidious currents of deadly cold found their way through keyholes. Mrs. Pontellier's mind was quite at rest concerning the present material needs of her children, and she could not see the use of anticipating and making winter night garments the subject of her summer meditations. But she did not want to appear unamiable and uninterested, so she had brought forth newspapers, which she spread upon the floor of the gallery, and under Madame Ratignol's directions she had cut a pattern of the impervious garment. Robert was there, seated as he had been the Sunday before, and Mrs. Pontellier also occupied her former position on the upper step, leaning listlessly against the post. Beside her was a box of bonbons, which she held out at intervals to Madame Ratignol. That lady seemed at a loss to make a selection, but finally settled upon a stick of nougat, wondering if it were not too rich, whether it could possibly hurt her. Madame Ratignol had been married seven years. About every two years she had a baby. At that time, she had three babies, and she was beginning to think of a fourth one. She was always talking about her condition. Her condition was in no way apparent, and no one would have known a thing about it but for her persistence in making it the subject of conversation. Robert started to reassure her, asserting that he had known a lady who had subsisted upon nougat during the entire, but seeing the color mount into Mrs. Pontellier's face, he checked himself and changed the subject. Mrs. Pontellier, though she had married a Creole, was not thoroughly at home in the society of Creoles. 
Never before had she been thrown so intimately among them. There were only Creoles that summer at Lebrun's. They all knew each other and felt like one large family, among whom existed the most amicable relations. A characteristic which distinguished them and which impressed Mrs. Pontellier most forcibly was their entire absence of prudery. Their freedom of expression was at first incomprehensible to her, though she had no difficulty in reconciling it with the lofty chastity which in the Creole woman seems to be inborn and unmistakable. Never would Edna Pontellier forget the shock with which she heard Madame Ratignolle relating to old Monsieur Farival the harrowing story of one of her accouchements, withholding no intimate detail. She was growing accustomed to like shocks, but she could not keep the mounting color back from her cheeks. Oftener than once, her coming had interrupted the droll story with which Robert was entertaining some amused group of married women. A book had gone the rounds of the pension. When it came her turn to read it, she did so with profound astonishment. She felt moved to read the book in secret and solitude, though none of the others had done so, to hide it from view at the sound of approaching footsteps. It was openly criticized and freely discussed at table. Mrs. Pontellier gave over being astonished and concluded that wonders would never cease. 5. They formed a congenial group sitting there that summer afternoon. Madame Ratignolle sewing away, often stopping to relate a story or incident with much expressive gesture of her perfect hands, Robert and Mrs. Pontellier sitting idle, exchanging occasional words, glances, or smiles, which indicated a certain advanced stage of intimacy and camaraderie. He had lived in her shadow during the past month. No one thought anything of it. Many had predicted that Robert would devote himself to Mrs. Pontellier when he arrived. Since the age of fifteen, which was eleven years before, Robert each summer at Grand Isle had constituted himself the devoted attendant of some fair dame or damsel. Sometimes it was a young girl, again a widow, but as often as not it was some interesting married woman. For two consecutive seasons he lived in the sunlight of Mademoiselle Duvigne's presence, but she died between summers. Then Robert posed as an inconsolable, prostrating himself at the feet of Madame Ratignolle for whatever crumbs of sympathy and comfort she might be pleased to vouchsafe. Mrs. Pontellier liked to sit and gaze at her fair companion as she might look upon a faultless Madonna. Could anyone fathom the cruelty beneath that fair exterior, murmured Robert. She knew that I adored her once, and she let me adore her. It was, Robert, come, go, stand up, sit down, do this, do that, see if the baby sleeps, my thimble, please, that I left God knows where, come and read Dorette to me while I sew. Par exemple, I never had to ask, you were always there under my feet like a troublesome cat. You mean like an adoring dog, and just as soon as Radignol appeared on the scene, then it was like a dog. Passe, adieu, allez-vous homme. Perhaps I feared to make Alphonse jealous, she interjoined with excessive naivete. That made them all laugh. The right hand jealous of the left, the heart jealous of the soul. But for that matter, the Creole husband is never jealous. With him, the gangrene passion is one which has become dwarfed by disuse. Meanwhile, Robert, addressing Mrs. Pontellier, continued to tell of his one-time hopeless passion for Madame Ratignolle, of sleepless nights, of consuming flames till the very sea sizzled when he took his daily plunge, while the lady at the needle kept up a little running, contemptuous comment, Blagueur, farceur, grosse bedva. He never assumed this serio-comic tone when alone with Mrs. Pontellier. She never knew precisely what to make of it. At that moment, it was impossible for her to guess how much of it was jest and what proportion was earnest. It was understood that he had often spoken words of love to Madame Ratignolle without any thought of being taken seriously. Mrs. Pontellier was glad he had not assumed a similar role toward herself. It would have been unacceptable and annoying. Mrs. Pontellier had brought her sketching materials, which she sometimes dabbled with in an unprofessional way. She liked the dabbling. She felt in it satisfaction of a kind which no other employment afforded her. She had long wished to try herself on Madame Ratignolle. Never had that lady seemed a more tempting subject than at that moment, seated there like some sensuous Madonna, with the gleam of the fading day enriching her splendid color. Robert crossed over and seated himself upon the step below Mrs. Pontellier, that he might watch her work. She handled her brushes with a certain ease and freedom which came, not from long and close acquaintance with them, but from a natural aptitude. 
Robert followed her work with close attention, giving forth little ejaculatory expressions of appreciation in French, which he addressed to Madame Ratignolle. Mais ce n'est pas mal, elle s'y connaît, elle a de la force, oui. During his oblivious attention, he once quietly rested his head against Mrs. Pontellier's arm. As gently she repulsed him, once again he repeated the offense. She could not but believe it to be thoughtlessness on his part, yet that was no reason she should submit to it. She did not remonstrate, except again to repulse him quietly but firmly. He offered no apology. The picture completed bore no resemblance to Madame Ratignolle. She was greatly disappointed to find that it did not look like her, but it was a fair enough piece of work, and in many respects satisfying. Mrs. Pontellier evidently did not think so. After surveying the sketch critically, she drew a broad smudge of paint across its surface and crumpled the paper between her hands. The youngsters came tumbling up the steps, the quadroon following at the respectful distance which they required her to observe. Mrs. Pontellier made them carry her paints and things into the house. She sought to detain them for a little talk and some pleasantry, but they were greatly in earnest. They had only come to investigate the contents of the bonbon box. They accepted without murmuring what she chose to give them, each holding out two chubby hands scoop-like in the vain hope that they might be filled, and then away they went. The sun was low in the west, and the breeze soft and languorous that came up from the south, charged with the seductive odor of the sea. Children, freshly befurbelowed, were gathering for their games under the oaks. Their voices were high and penetrating. Madame Ratignolle folded her sewing, placing thimble, scissors, and thread all neatly together in the roll, which she pinned securely. She complained of faintness. Mrs. Pontellier flew for the cologne water in a fan. She bathed Madame Ratignolle's face with cologne, while Robert plied the fan with unnecessary vigor. The spell was soon over, and Mrs. Pontellier could not help wondering if there were not a little imagination responsible for its origin, for the rose tint had never faded from her friend's face. She stood watching the fair woman walk down the long line of galleries with the grace and majesty which queens are sometimes supposed to possess. Her little ones ran to meet her. Two of them clung about her white skirts. The third she took from its nurse and with a thousand endearments bore it along in her own fond encircling arms. Though, as everybody well knew, the doctor had forbidden her to lift so much as a pen. "'Are you going bathing?' asked Robert of Mrs. Pontellier. It was not so much a question as a reminder. "'Oh, no,' she answered with a tone of indecision. "'I'm tired. I think not.' Her glance wandered from his face away toward the gulf, whose sonorous murmur reached her like a loving but imperative entreaty. "'Oh, come,' he insisted. "'You mustn't miss your bath. Come on. The water must be delicious. It will not hurt you. Come.' He reached up for her big, rough straw hat that hung on a peg outside the door and put it on her head. They descended the steps and walked away together toward the beach. The sun was low in the west, and the breeze was soft and warm. 6. Edna Pontellier could not have told why, wishing to go to the beach with Robert, she should in the first place have declined, and in the second place have followed in obedience to one of the two contradictory impulses which impelled her. A certain light was beginning to dawn dimly within her, the light which, showing the way, forbids it. At that early period it served but to bewilder her. It moved her to dreams, to thoughtfulness, to the shadowy anguish which had overcome her the midnight when she had abandoned herself to tears. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being, and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of twenty-eight, perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe to any woman. But the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginning! How many souls perish in its tumult! The voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamoring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander for a spell in abysses of solitude to lose itself in mazes of inward contemplation. The voice of the sea speaks to the soul. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. 7. Mrs. Pontellier was not a woman given to confidences, a characteristic hitherto contrary to her nature. Even as a child, she lived her own small life all within herself. 
At a very early period, she had apprehended instinctively the dual life, that outward existence which conforms, the inward life which questions. That summer, at Grand Isle, she began to loosen a little the mantle of reserve that had always enveloped her. There may have been, there must have been, influences, both subtle and apparent, working in their several ways to induce her to do this, but the most obvious was the influence of Adèle Ratignolle. The excessive physical charm of the Creole had first attracted her, for Edna had a sensuous susceptibility to beauty. Then, the candor of the woman's whole existence, which everyone might read, and which formed so striking a contrast to her own habitual reserve, this might have furnished a link. Who can tell what metals the gods use in forging the subtle bond which we call sympathy, which we might as well call love? The two women went away one morning to the beach together, arm in arm, under the huge white sunshade. Edna had prevailed upon Madame Ratignolle to leave the children behind, though she could not induce her to relinquish a diminutive roll of needlework, which Adele begged to be allowed to slip into the depths of her pocket. In some unaccountable way, they had escaped from Robert. The walk to the beach was no inconsiderable one, consisting as it did of a long, sandy path upon which a sporadic and tangled growth that bordered it on either side made frequent and unexpected inroads. There were acres of yellow chamomile reaching out on either hand. Further away still, vegetable gardens abounded, with frequent small plantations of orange or lemon trees intervening. The dark green clusters glistened from afar in the sun. The women were both of goodly height, Madame Ratignolle possessing the more feminine and matronly figure. The charm of Edna Pontellier's physique stole insensibly upon you. The lines of her body were long, clean, and symmetrical. It was a body which occasionally fell into splendid poses. There was no suggestion of the trim, stereotyped fashion played about it. A casual and indiscriminating observer, in passing, might not cast a second glance upon the figure, but with more feeling and discernment he would have recognized the noble beauty of its modeling, and the graceful severity of poise and movement which made Edna Pontellier different from the crowd. She wore a cool muslin that morning, white, with a waving vertical line of brown running through it, also a white linen collar, and the big straw hat which she had taken from the peg outside the door. The hat rested any way on her yellow-brown hair, that waved a little, was heavy, and clung close to her head. Madame Ratignolle, more careful of her complexion, had twined a gauze veil about her head. She wore dogskin gloves, with gauntlets that protected her wrist. She was dressed in pure white, with a fluffiness of ruffles that became her. The draperies and fluttering things which she wore suited her rich, luxuriant beauty, as a greater severity of line could not have done. There were a number of bathhouses along the beach, of rough but solid construction, built with small, protecting galleries facing the water. Each house consisted of two compartments, and each family at Le Bruns possessed a compartment for itself, fitted out with all the essential paraphernalia of the bath and whatever other conveniences the owners might desire. The two women had no intention of bathing. They had just strolled down to the beach for a walk and to be alone and near the water. The Pontellier and Ratignolle compartments adjoined one another under the same roof. Mrs. Pontellier had brought down her key through force of habit. Unlocking the door of her bathroom, she went inside and soon emerged, bringing a rug, which she spread upon the floor of the gallery, and two huge hair pillows covered with crash, which she placed against the front of the building. The two seated themselves there in the shade of the porch, side by side, with their backs against the pillows and their feet extended. Madame Ratignolle removed her veil, wiped her face with a rather delicate handkerchief, and fanned herself with the fan, which she always carried suspended somewhere about her person by a long, narrow ribbon. Edna removed her collar and opened her dress at the throat. She took the fan from Madame Ratignolle and began to fan both herself and her companion. It was very warm, and for a while they did nothing but exchange remarks about the heat, the sun, the glare. But there was a breeze blowing, a choppy, stiff wind that whipped the water into froth. It fluttered the skirts of the two women and kept them for a while engaged in adjusting, readjusting, tucking in, securing hairpins and hatpins. A few persons were sporting some distance away in the water. The beach was very still of human sound at that hour. The lady in black was reading her morning devotions on the porch of a neighboring bathhouse. Two young lovers were exchanging their hearts' yearnings beneath the children's tent, which they had found unoccupied. Edna Pontellier, casting her eyes about, had finally kept them at rest upon the sea. 
The day was clear and carried the gaze out as far as the blue sky went. There were a few white clouds suspended idly over the horizon. A lateen sail was visible in the direction of Cat Island, and others to the south seemed almost motionless in the far distance. Of whom? Of what are you thinking? asked Adele of her companion, whose countenance she had been watching with a little amused attention, arrested by the absorbed expression which seemed to have seized and fixed every feature into a statuesque repose. Nothing, returned Mrs. Pontellier with a start, adding at once, how stupid, but it seems to me it is the reply we make instinctively to such a question. Let me see, she went on, throwing back her head and narrowing her fine eyes till they shone like two vivid points of light. Let me see. I was really not conscious of thinking of anything, but perhaps I can retrace my thoughts. Oh, never mind, laughed Madame Ratignolle. I am not quite so exacting. I will let you off this time. It is really too hot to think, especially to think about thinking. But for the fun of it, persisted Edna, first of all, the sight of the water stretching so far away, those motionless sails against the blue sky, made a delicious picture that I just wanted to sit and look at. The hot wind beating in my face made me think, without any connection that I can trace, of a summer day in Kentucky, of a meadow that seemed as big as the ocean to the very little girl walking through the grass, which was higher than her waist. She threw out her arms as if swimming when she walked, beating the tall grass as one strikes out in the water. Oh, I see the connection now. Where were you going that day in Kentucky, walking through the grass? I don't remember now. I was just walking diagonally across a big field. My sunbonnet obstructed the view. I could see only the stretch of green before me, and I felt as if I must walk on forever without coming to the end of it. I don't remember whether I was frightened or pleased. I must have been entertained. Likely as not it was Sunday, she laughed, and I was running away from prayers, from the Presbyterian service, bred in a spirit of gloom by my father that chills me yet to think of. And have you been running away from prayers ever since, ma chère? asked Madame Ratignolle, amused. No, oh no, Edna hastened to say. I was a little unthinking child in those days, just following a misleading impulse without question. On the contrary, during one period of my life, religion took a firm hold upon me, after I was twelve and until... until... Why, I suppose until now, though I never thought much about it. Just driven along by habit. But do you know, she broke off, turning her quick eyes upon Madame Ratignolle, and leaning forward a little so as to bring her face quite close to that of her companion, sometimes I feel this summer as if I were walking through the green meadow again, idly, aimlessly, unthinking and unguided. Madame Ratignolle laid her hand over that of Mrs. Pontellier, which was near her. Seeing that the hand was not withdrawn, she clasped it firmly and warmly. She even stroked it a little, fondly, with the other hand, murmuring in an undertone, Paul Chetty. The action was at first a little confusing to Edna, but she soon lent herself readily to the Creole's gentle caress. She was not accustomed to an outward and spoken expression of affection, either in herself or in others. She and her younger sister Janet had quarreled a good deal through force of unfortunate habit. Her older sister Margaret was matronly and dignified, probably from having assumed matronly and housewifely responsibilities too early in life, their mother having died when they were quite young. Margaret was not effusive, she was practical. Edna had had an occasional girlfriend, but whether accidentally or not, they seemed to have been all of one type, the self-contained. She never realized that the reserve of her own character had much, perhaps everything, to do with this. Her most intimate friend at school had been one of rather exceptional intellectual gifts, who wrote fine-sounding essays, which Edna admired and strove to imitate, and with her she talked and glowed over the English classics and sometimes held religious and political controversies. Edna often wondered at one propensity which sometimes had inwardly disturbed her without causing any outward show or manifestation on her part. At a very early age, perhaps it was when she traversed the ocean of waving grass, she remembered that she had been passionately enamored of a dignified and sad-eyed cavalry officer who visited her father in Kentucky. She could not leave his presence when he was there, nor remove her eyes from his face, which was something like Napoleon's, with a lock of black hair falling across the forehead. But the cavalry officer melted imperceptibly out of her existence. At another time, her affections were deeply engaged by a young gentleman who visited a lady on a neighboring plantation. 
It was after they went to Mississippi to live. The young man was engaged to be married to the young lady, and they sometimes called upon Margaret, driving over of afternoons in a buggy. Edna was a little miss, just merging into her teens, and the realization that she herself was nothing, 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 to the engaged young man was a bitter affliction to her. But he, too, went the way of dreams. She was a grown young woman when she was overtaken what she supposed to be the climax of her fate. It was when the face and figure of a great tragedian began to haunt her imagination and stir her senses. The persistence of the infatuation lent it an aspect of genuineness. The hopelessness of it colored it with the lofty tones of a great passion. The picture of the tragedian stood framed upon her desk. Anyone may possess the portrait of a tragedian without exciting suspicion or comment. This was a sinister reflection which she cherished. In the presence of others, she expressed admiration for his exalted gifts, as she handed like photographs around and dwelt upon the fidelity of the likeness. When alone, she sometimes picked it up and kissed the cold glass passionately. Her marriage to Léonce Pontellier was purely an accident, in this respect resembling many other marriages which masquerade as the decrees of fate. It was in the midst of her secret great passion that she met him. He fell in love, as men are in the habit of doing, and pressed his suit with an earnestness and an ardor which left nothing to be desired. He pleased her. His absolute devotion flattered her. She fancied there was a sympathy of thought and taste between them, in which fancy she was mistaken. Add to this the violent opposition of her father and her sister Margaret to her marriage with a Catholic, and we need seek no further for the motives which led her to accept Monsieur Pontellier for her husband. The acme of bliss, which would have been a marriage with the tragedian, was not for her in this world. As the devoted wife of a man who worshipped her, she felt she would take her place with a certain dignity in the world of reality, closing the portals forever behind her upon the realm of romance and dreams. But it was not long before the tragedian had gone to join the cavalry officer and the engaged young man and a few others, and Edna found herself face to face with the realities. She grew fond of her husband, realizing with some unaccountable satisfaction that no trace of passion or excessive and fictitious warmth colored her affection, thereby threatening its dissolution. She was fond of her children in an uneven, impulsive way. She would sometimes gather them passionately to her heart, she would sometimes forget them. The year before, they had spent part of the summer with their grandmother, Pontellier, in Iberville. Feeling secure regarding their happiness and welfare, she did not miss them except with an occasional intense longing. Their absence was a sort of relief, though she did not admit this even to herself. It seemed to free her of a responsibility which she had blindly assumed and for which fate had not fitted her. Edna did not reveal so much as all this to Madame Ratignolle that summer day when they sat with faces turned to the sea, but a good part of it escaped her. She had put her head down on Madame Ratignolle's shoulder. She was flushed and felt intoxicated with the sound of her own voice and the unaccustomed taste of candor. It muddled her like wine or like a first breath of freedom. There was the sound of approaching voices. It was Robert, surrounded by a troop of children, searching for them. The two little Pontelliers were with him, and he carried Madame Ratignolle's little girl in his arms. There were other children beside, and two nursemaids followed, looking disagreeable and resigned. The women at once rose and began to shake out their draperies and relax their muscles. Mrs. Pontellier threw the cushions and rug into the bathhouse. The children all scampered off to the awning, and they stood there in a line, gazing upon the intruding lovers, still exchanging their vows and sighs. The lovers got up, with only a silent protest, and walked slowly away somewhere else. The children possessed themselves of the tent, and Mrs. Pontellier went over to join them. Madame Ratignolle begged Robert to accompany her to the house. She complained of cramp in her limbs and stiffness of the joints. She leaned draggingly upon his arm as they walked. 8. "'Do me a favor, Robert,' spoke the pretty woman at his side, almost as soon as she and Robert had started their slow, homeward way. She looked up in his face, leaning on his arm beneath the encircling shadow of the umbrella which he had lifted. "'Granted, as many as you like,' he returned, glancing down into her eyes that were full of thoughtfulness and some speculation. "'I only ask for one. Let Mrs. Pontellier alone.' "'Tiens!' he exclaimed, with a sudden boyish laugh. "'Voilà que Madame Ratignolle est jalouse!' "'Nonsense! I'm in earnest. I mean what I say.' Let Mrs. Pontellier alone. 
Why, he asked, himself growing serious at his companion's solicitation. She is not one of us. She is not like us. She might make the unfortunate blunder of taking you seriously. His face flushed with annoyance, and taking off his soft hat, he began to beat it impatiently against his leg as he walked. Why shouldn't she take me seriously? he demanded sharply. Am I a comedian? A clown? A jack-in-the-box? Why shouldn't she? You creoles, I have no patience with you. Am I always to be regarded as a feature of an amusing program? I hope Mrs. Pontellier does take me seriously. I hope she has discernment enough to find in me something besides the blagueur. If I thought there was any doubt— Oh, enough, Robert, she broke into his heated outburst. You are not thinking of what you are saying. You speak with about as little reflection as we might expect from one of those children down there playing in the sand. If your attentions to any married woman here were ever offered with any intention of being convincing, you would not be the gentleman we all know you to be, and you would be unfit to associate with the wives and daughters of the people who trust you. Madame Ratignolle had spoken what she believed to be the law and the gospel. The young man shrugged his shoulders impatiently. Oh, well, that isn't it, slamming his hat down vehemently upon his head. You ought to feel that such things are not flattering to say to a fellow. Should our whole intercourse consist of an exchange of compliments, ma foi, it isn't pleasant to have a woman tell you, he went on, unheedingly, but breaking off suddenly. Now, if I were like Arubin, you remember Alcé Arubin and that story of the consul's wife at Biloxi, and he related the story of Alcé Arubin and the consul's wife, and another about the tenor of the French opera, who received letters which should never have been written, and still other stories, grave and gay, till Mrs. Pontellier and her possible propensity for taking young men seriously was apparently forgotten. Madame Ratignolle, when they had regained her cottage, went in to take the hour's rest which she considered helpful. Before leaving her, Robert begged her pardon for the impatience, he called it rudeness, with which he had received her well-meant caution. "'You made one mistake, Adele,' he said, with a light smile. "'There is no earthly possibility of Mrs. Pontellier ever taking me seriously. You should have warned me against taking myself seriously. Your advice might then have carried some weight and given me subject for some reflection. Au revoir. But you look tired,' he added solicitously. "'Would you like a cup of bouillon? Shall I stir you a toddy? Let me mix you a toddy with a drop of angostura.' She acceded to the suggestion of bouillon, which was grateful and acceptable. He went himself to the kitchen, which was the building apart from the cottages and lying to the rear of the house, and he himself brought her the golden-brown bouillon in a dainty Sevres cup with a flaky cracker or two on the saucer. She thrust a bare white arm from the curtain, which shielded her open door, and received the cup from his hands. She told him he was a bon garçon, and she meant it. Robert thanked her and turned away toward the house. The lovers were just entering the grounds of the pension. They were leaning toward each other as the water oaks bent from the sea. There was not a particle of earth beneath their feet. Their heads might have been turned upside down, so absolutely did they tread upon blue ether. The lady in black, creeping behind them, looked a trifle paler and more jaded than usual. There was no sign of Mrs. Pontellier and the children. Robert scanned at the distance for any such apparition. They would doubtless remain away till the dinner hour. The young man ascended to his mother's room. It was situated at the top of the house, made up of odd angles and a queer sloping ceiling. Two broad dormer windows looked out toward the gulf, and as far across it as a man's eye might reach. The furnishings of the room were light, cool, and practical. Madame Lebrun was busily engaged at the sewing machine. A little black girl sat on the floor, and with her hands worked the cradle of the machine. The Creole woman does not take any chances which may be avoided of imperiling her health. Robert went over and seated himself on the broad sill of one of the dormer windows. He took a book from his pocket and began energetically to read it, judging by the precision and frequency with which he turned the leaves. The sewing machine made a resounding clatter in the room. It was of a ponderous bygone make. In the lulls, Robert and his mother exchanged bits of desultory conversation. Where is Mrs. Pontellier? Down at the beach with the children. I promised to lend her the Goncourt. Don't forget to take it down when you go. It's there on the bookshelf, over the small table. Clatter, 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 bang, for the next five or eight minutes. Where is Victor going with the Rockaway? The Rockaway? Victor? Yes, down there in front. He seems to be getting ready to drive away somewhere. Call him. Clatter, clatter. 
Robert uttered a shrill, piercing whistle, which might have been heard back at the wharf. He won't look up. Madame Lebrun flew to the window. She called, Victor! She waved a handkerchief and called again. The young fellow below got into the vehicle and started the horse off at a gallop. Madame Lebrun went back to the machine, crimson with annoyance. Victor was the younger son and brother, a tête montée with a temper which invited violence and a will which no axe could break. Whenever you say the word, I'm ready to thrash any amount of reason into him that he's able to hold. If your father had only lived, clatter, 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 bang. It was a fixed belief with Madame Lebrun that the conduct of the universe and all things pertaining thereto would have been manifestly of a more intelligent and higher order had not Monsieur Lebrun been removed to other spheres during the early years of their married life. What do you hear from Montel? Montel was a middle-aged man whose vain ambition and desire for the past twenty years had been to fill the void which Monsieur Lebrun's taking off had left in the Lebrun household. Clatter, clatter, bang, clatter. I have a letter somewhere, looking in the machine drawer and finding the letter in the bottom of the workbasket. He says to tell you he will be at Veracruz the beginning of next month. Clatter, clatter. And if you still have the intention of joining him, bang, clatter, clatter, bang. Why didn't you tell me so before, mother? You know I wanted... Clatter, clatter, clatter. Do you see Mrs. Pontellier starting back with the children? She will be in late to luncheon again. She never starts to get ready for lunch until the last minute. Clatter, clatter. Where are you going? Where did you say the Goncourt was? 9. Every light in the hall was ablaze. Every lamp turned as high as it could be without smoking the chimney or threading an explosion. The lamps were fixed at intervals against the wall, encircling the whole room. Someone had gathered orange and lemon branches, and with these fashioned graceful festoons between. The dark green of the branches stood out and glistened against the white muslin curtains which draped the windows, and which puffed, floated, and flapped at the capricious will of a stiff breeze that swept up from the gulf. It was Saturday night a few weeks after the intimate conversation held between Robert and Madame Ratignolle on their way from the beach. An unusual number of husbands, fathers, and friends had come down to stay over Sunday, and they were being suitably entertained by their families with the material help of Madame Lebrun. The dining tables had all been removed to one end of the hall, and the chairs ranged about in rows and in clusters. Each little family group had had its say and exchanged its domestic gossip earlier in the evening. There was now an apparent disposition to relax, to widen the circle of confidences, and give a more general tone to the conversation. Many of the children had been permitted to sit up beyond their usual bedtime. A small band of them were lying on their stomachs on the floor, looking at the colored sheets of the comic papers which Mr. Pontellier had brought down. The little Pontellier boys were permitting them to do so, and making their authority felt. Music, dancing, and a recitation or two were the entertainments furnished, or rather, offered. But there was nothing systematic about the program, no appearance of prearrangement, nor even premeditation. At an early hour in the evening, the Fireball twins were prevailed upon to play the piano. They were girls of fourteen, always clad in the virgin's colors, blue and white, having been dedicated to the Blessed Virgin at their baptism. They played a duet from Zampa, and at the earnest solicitation of everyone present, followed it with the overture to The Poet and the Peasant. "'Allez-vous en! Sapristi!' shrieked the parrot outside the door. He was the only being present who possessed sufficient candor to admit that he was not listening to these gracious performances for the first time that summer. Old Monsieur Farival, grandfather of the twins, grew indignant over the interruption, and insisted upon having the bird removed and consigned to regions of darkness. Victor Lebrun objected, and his decrees were as immutable as those of fate. The parrot fortunately offered no further interruption to the entertainment, the whole venom of his nature apparently having been cherished upon and hurled against the twins in that one impetuous outburst. Later, a young brother and sister gave recitations, which everyone present had heard many times at winter evening entertainments in the city. A little girl performed a skirt dance in the center of the floor. The mother played her accompaniments, and at the same time watched her daughter with greedy admiration and nervous apprehension. She need have no apprehension. The child was mistress of the situation. She had been properly dressed for the occasion in black tulle and black silk tights. Her little neck and arms were bare, and her hair, artificially crimped, stood out like fluffy black plumes over her head. 
Her poses were full of grace, and her little black-shod toes twinkled as they shot out and upward with a rapidity and suddenness which were bewildering. But there was no reason why everyone should not dance. Madame Ratignolle could not, so it was she who gaily consented to play for the others. She played very well, keeping excellent waltz time and infusing an expression into the strains which was indeed inspiring. She was keeping up her music on account of the children, she said, because she and her husband both considered it a means of brightening the home and making it attractive. Almost everyone danced but the twins, who could not be induced to separate during the brief period when one or the other should be whirling around the room in the arms of a man. They might have danced together, but they did not think of it. The children were sent to bed. Some went submissively, others with shrieks and protests as they were dragged away. They had been permitted to sit up till after the ice cream, which naturally marked the limit of human indulgence. The ice cream was passed around with cake, gold and silver cake, arranged on platters and alternate slices. It had been made and frozen during the afternoon back of the kitchen by two black women under the supervision of Victor. It was pronounced a great success. Excellent if it had only contained a little less vanilla or a little more sugar, if it had been frozen a degree harder, and if the salt might have been kept out of portions of it. Victor was proud of his achievement and went about recommending it and urging everyone to partake of it to excess. After Mrs. Pontellier had danced twice with her husband, once with Robert, and once with Monsieur Ratignol, who was thin and tall and swayed like a reed in the wind when he danced, she went out on the gallery and seated herself on the low window sill, where she commanded a view of all that went on in the hall and could look out toward the gulf. There was a soft effulgence in the east. The moon was coming up, and its mystic shimmer was casting a million lights across the distant, restless water. "'Would you like to hear Mademoiselle Reese play?' asked Robert, coming out on the porch where she was. "'Of course Edna would like to hear Mademoiselle Reese play, but she feared it would be useless to entreat her.' "'I'll ask her,' he said. "'I'll tell her that you want to hear her. She likes you. She will come.' He turned and hurried away to one of the far cottages, where Mademoiselle Reese was shuffling away. She was dragging a chair in and out of her room, and at intervals objecting to the crying of a baby, which a nurse in the adjoining cottage was endeavoring to put to sleep. She was a disagreeable little woman, no longer young, who had quarreled with almost everyone, owing to a temper which was self-assertive and a disposition to trample upon the rights of others. Robert prevailed upon her without any too great difficulty. She entered the hall with him during a lull in the dance. She made an awkward, imperious little bow as she went in. She was a homely woman, with a small, weazened face and body and eyes that glowed. She had absolutely no taste in dress, and wore a batch of rusty black lace with a bunch of artificial violets pinned to the side of her hair. "'Ask Mrs. Pontellier what she would like to hear me play,' she requested of Robert. She sat perfectly still before the piano, not touching the keys, while Robert carried her message to Edna at the window. A general air of surprise and genuine satisfaction fell upon everyone as they saw the pianist enter. There was a settling down and a prevailing air of expectancy everywhere. Edna was a trifle embarrassed at being thus signaled out for the imperious little woman's favor. She would not dare to choose, and begged that Mademoiselle Reese would please herself in her selections. Edna was what she herself called very fond of music. Musical strains, well rendered, had a way of evoking pictures in her mind. She sometimes liked to sit in the room of mornings when Mademoiselle Ratignolle played or practiced. One piece which that lady played, Edna had entitled Solitude. It was a short, plaintive, minor strain. The name of the piece was something else, but she called it Solitude. When she heard it, there came before her imagination the figure of a man standing beside a desolate rock on the seashore. He was naked. His attitude was one of hopeless resignation as he looked toward a distant bird winging its flight away from him. Another piece called to her mind a dainty young woman clad in an empire gown, taking mincing dancing steps as she came down a long avenue between tall hedges. Again, another reminded her of children at play, and still another of nothing on earth but a demure lady stroking a cat. The very first chords which Mademoiselle Reese struck upon the piano sent a keen tremor down Mrs. Pontellier's spinal column. It was not the first time she had heard an artist at the piano. Perhaps it was the first time she was ready. Perhaps the first time her being was tempered to take an impress of the abiding truth. She waited for the material pictures which she thought would gather and blaze before her imagination. She waited in vain. She saw no pictures of solitude, of hope, of longing, or of despair, but the very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, 
swaying it, lashing it, as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. She trembled, she was choking, and the tears blinded her. Mademoiselle had finished. She rose, and bowing her stiff, lofty bow, she went away, stopping for neither thanks nor applause. As she passed along the gallery, she patted Edna upon the shoulder. "'Well, how did you like my music?' she asked. The young woman was unable to answer. She pressed the hand of the pianist convulsively. Mademoiselle Reese perceived her agitation and even her tears. She patted her again upon the shoulder as she said, "'You were the only one worth playing for. Those others? Bah!' And she went shuffling and sidling on down the gallery toward her room. But she was mistaken about those others. Her playing had aroused a fever of enthusiasm. "'What passion! What an artist!' I have always said no one could play Chopin like Mademoiselle Reese. That last prelude, bon Dieu, it makes a man. It was growing late, and there was a general disposition to disband. But someone, perhaps it was Robert, thought of a bath at that mystic hour and under that mystic moon. Okay, before we get started discussing these chapters, I just wanted to remind you how I'm able to make this podcast happen. Okay, so we see a lot more happen in these chapters. Obviously, they're a bit longer, so we have um, more information to work with, but we do kind of get what I was hoping for, which is this nice mixture of background information, but also some additional, like, movement in the plot. We have some character development. We see Edna starting to realize that she's kind of held herself back her whole life, and She's never really come out of her shell. She's never really been honest with anyone. Um, she's been quiet and reserved, and everyone that she surrounded herself was the same way. Probably, like, she's realizing because that's how she is, and like attracts like often. So she was limiting herself, not only herself, literally, and her abilities, but also who she was surrounded with and who she interacted with and who could have potentially expanded her horizons and she always had pretty like awful taste in men like she always wanted men that weren't available to her um presumably also for that same reason or at least partially uh because she was limiting herself and not really letting herself see her full potential and she admits this to madame ratignolle uh who because of all of this probably was like robert you've gotta chill out i don't know if this woman is gonna realize that you're like playing around um, and Robert gets really upset about it, uh, presumably because he doesn't really know if he's joking or not, um, and so he gets a bit defensive, and then he's like, it would have been better if you told me to not start believing what I'm saying, because she would never, she would never take an interest in me, she would never do something like that, uh, she would never take me seriously. And that, to me, kind of indicates that he kind of wishes that that were the case, but... He knows that that's not realistic. Um, we also get to see more of Edna's connection with her children. Uh, she didn't apparently want to have kids. It was just something that kind of happened. I mean, that was a pretty common thing back then. Obviously, contraception wasn't really a thing, so you ended up with children. Um, but she, she has a connection with the children that is very childlike in itself. Um, she either is absolutely in love with them or she wants nothing to do with them, and... That's very childlike to me. Uh, kids tend to think in, in kind of polarities. It's either this or that. There's no kind of gray area. It's one or the other. Um, and that's kind of her approach to her children. And I think it's unfortunate that she is in this position when she didn't really want to be. Um, but it definitely is an important point to remember while reading that she doesn't hate her children. She doesn't... <laughs> 
necessarily resent them themselves. She resents that she had to become a mother when that, as she said, wasn't fated for her. She shouldn't have been, and she was anyways. Um, so I do feel pretty bad for her in that regard because kids are a lot of work, and even if you have helpers and nannies and that sort of thing, you're still the parent, and it's still a lot of responsibility that you have to take on. So I think... Uh, that's definitely a hard thing to do when you didn't really want to take on that burden to begin with. But I think it's important to see that she's starting to open up and she gets really emotional when the piano is played and music can have that effect on people. But especially if she's just now kind of coming into her own, starting to realize things about herself, starting to kind of question like who she is and what she wants and why she has been so closed off her whole life and how she's making connections and also like distinguishing herself against the people that are around her. She's she's acting like a child would, not in a negative or like derogatory way, but gen genuinely she's acting like a child, discovering themselves, discovering their place in society, discovering themselves in relationship to those around them and their world and their society, their community. She's doing all of these things, but she's almost 30. So I can imagine that it's much more difficult to go through this when you have children versus when you're a child. So I'm curious to see how all of this kind of impacts how the story continues and where we go from here and everything that we are going to learn after uh, we've been given this information. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how things develop further if Edna starts to come out of her shell more. Um, you know, like, what happens? Thanks for listening. This has been Chapters 4 through 9 of The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Tune in on Monday for the next episode, looking at Chapters 10 through 14. <laughs>